You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. There once was a young man who went looking for a rabbi to mentor him. The young man finds a great rabbi and asks him to take him under his wing. But the rabbi turns him down saying, you're you're too young. Come back to me in 10 years. (laughs) The young man replies that he's already mastered the logic of Aristotle, Socrates, Plato, and many other of the greats. And so he asks the rabbi to give him a test to prove himself. And after thinking for a few minutes, the rabbi comes back with a question. He says, two men descend down a chimney. Upon reaching the bottom, one man's face is covered with soot. Which man washes his face? The young man replies, well, obviously it's the man with soot on his face. And the rabbi says, no, it's the man without soot on his face because he can see his friend's face, and he assumes his face is also covered in soot, so he washes his face. The young man says, okay, but please, please, all right, don't send me away. Give me another test. I'm sure I'll get it right this time. The rabbi thinks for a moment and says, listen very carefully. Two men descend down a chimney. Upon reaching the bottom, one man's face is covered in soot. Which man washes his face? The young man replies, the man without soot on his face. Rabbi says, no, you're not listening. Obviously, it's the man with soot on his face. It's it's stinging his eyes. He can smell it. He can taste it in his mouth. He can feel it on his skin. Please don't send me away, (laughs) replies the young man. Give me just one more chance. I'm sure I'll get it right. Okay, but listen very carefully, says the rabbi. Two men descend down a chimney upon reaching the bottom. One man's face is covered in soot. Which man washes his face? The young man replies, neither man washes his face. No, 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 says the rabbi. Both men wash their face. How could anyone descend down a chimney and not think their face is covered in soot? All right, there's the joke. The point is there's no right answer to the riddle. That's the point of the the story. No matter what the student said, the rabbi would tell him, you're wrong. The rabbi was simply trying to teach the young man how to think, to give up his desire to reduce truth to this one single unchangeable thing, I guess. Instead, the student must learn to embrace ambiguity, uncertainty, the questions themselves, unknowing, which which is a deeper kind of truth, a deeper kind of insight. And I share this story because today on the liturgical church calendar, which we follow sometimes here, the the Western church calendar, today is known as Christ the King Sunday. It's always the Sunday right before Advent. And so I want to explore today this concept of Jesus' kingship and rulership, which is antithetical to our common conceptions of of rulership and authority, power and might, even reason and wisdom. Like the joke, Jesus' rulership and 
kingship is absolutely not what you expect. It thwarts our understanding, or at least the world's understanding. It is so alien, so beyond what people understand as rulership and kingship and power. And it's for this reason that Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of the region of Judea, was, was utterly dumbfounded and confused when he was interrogating Jesus, right before he, he sentenced Jesus to death. He was interrogating him and asking him about the nature of his kingship and his kingdom. Let's read that story now in John 18. When Pilate entered the headquarters again, he summoned Jesus and asked him, are you king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you ask this on your own? Did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I'm not a Jew, am I? What do I know? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me, have handed you over to me. What have you done? What have you done to piss everybody off? Tell me. I'm adding the piss off part. Even Pilate didn't say that. Jesus replied, my kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my father was... My followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to you and the chief priests. But as it is, my kingdom is its not from here. Pilate asked him, so you are a king. Aha. Jesus replied, you say, you say I'm a king. For this I was born and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Pilate replies, what is truth? One of the most profound philosophical existential questions, right? What, what is truth? I love that question. And the truth, according to Jesus, in this moment, in this moment with regards to the nature of his kingdom and his kingship, the truth, according to Jesus, is that his kingdom is nothing like that of Rome, which is what Pontius Pilate was thinking of when he was thinking of kingship and kingdoms, and when he was interrogating Jesus about his kingship and his claims to you know, a kingdom. The, the truth was Jesus' kingship, his understanding of power and authority was, was absolutely nothing that Pilate could wrap his head around. That's what he was saying when he said, my kingdom is not of this world, all of that. God's kingdom doesn't function according to the world's standards of power and might, but according to God's standards of power and might, which looks like weakness and powerlessness in the world's eyes. I love this quote from, I love many quotes from John Caputo, but especially this one, and I shared this last week, and it bears repeating today. The crucifixion was not a worldly victory, but a crushing defeat which shows us that what reigns in the reign of God is not power and victory, as the world knows such things. This was the victory of a call for justice over the cruelty of the world, the, the, the victory of the insistence of a call over the existence of a very real and unjust world, of the weakness of God over the strength of the world, the cruelty of the world is not extinguished at the cross, but exposed. I love that. The cruelty of the world 
The injustice of the world is not extinguished at the cross, but exposed and revealed as such. It's condemned for what it is at the cross. God's reign rises up from the ruins of the world in a glory that the world cannot comprehend. The way of the cross is not the way to glory, but the glory of the way, the way of love, in other words, the way of self-sacrifice, the way of resistance, of resisting evil powers, of laying one's life down for the cause of love and justice, especially for the least of these. All traditional understandings of power and might and strength are upended in the topsy-turvy kingdom of God that Jesus came proclaiming and embodying. Weakness is strength in the kingdom of God. Powerlessness is power. Poverty is wealth. You, you lay down your life in order to find life. The righteous are really the tax collectors and the Samaritans and those deemed other than and heretics. And the sinners and the unrighteous and the unholy are the clergy. The Pharisees, the priests, all those, you know, the so-called long robes. The so-called holy are unholy in the kingdom of God, and the so-called impure are pure in the kingdom of God. Rulership and authority looks like servanthood. The greatest among you shall be the servant of all, Jesus said. Power and authority in the kingdom of God looks like subordination. It looks like servanthood. In the kingdom of God, the first are last, and the last are first, Jesus says. Everything is upside down. All understandings of power and strength and authority, even logic and wisdom and reason itself is just flipped over, like Jesus flipping the tables in the temple. It's flipped over, undone, subverted, deconstructed, we might say. We should say. No aspect of our understanding of God, I would argue, escapes this reversal or should escape this reversal. No aspect of our understanding of the divine, of God, should escape this reversal. In other words, I contend that we should apply this reversal of power and authority to the story of Jesus itself and the Christian tradition itself. What do I mean by that? Well, with regards to the text, with regards to the Gospels, the four Gospels, let's say, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, with regards to the text itself, what makes the text powerful and authoritative is not its literalness or its perfection. It's neither literal nor perfect. What makes it powerful and meaningful is that it's full of symbolic and spiritual truth. People often assume that religion's true power, and we were raised to think this way, that our faith, Christianity's real power, comes from its scientific and historical accuracy, from the scientific and historical accuracy of Genesis and the Gospels, right? That this is our religion's true power. Our, the true power of our faith comes from the Bible's inerrancy. It's a fancy word. Inerrancy, without error, we were raised to think. Things like that. We're, we're told that unless the Bible is historically and scientifically accurate, then it's useless. This is a way of thinking according to the world's standards of power and might, not according to God's. 
This is a way of thinking according to the flesh, not according to the spirit, to invoke some of Paul's terminology he juxtaposed in his epistles, the flesh and the spirit. This way of thinking, to think in terms of the spirit, to think in terms of the kingdom of God, to think in terms of the so-called weakness of God, of the crucified God, is to understand, I believe, my opinion, that the deepest truths, the deepest spiritual truths are always couched in metaphor and symbols. The spirit of God in the scriptures speaks not in the power and strength of the literal, but in the so-called weakness of the figurative. So-called weakness. The spirit speaks in the so-called weak mediums of poetry and parables. This is how God comes to us in the text. The spirit speaks in the so-called weak mediums of poetry and parables, symbols and metaphors. But what the world sees as weak, and by the world I mean most of the church in this case, what the, what the world sees as weak, the spiritual-minded see as true power and true strength. I recently heard the comedian Pete Holmes, who's a deconstructed former evangelical, like so many of us. His new special is on Netflix, by the way, and it's really good. Quick plug that. But I recently heard Pete Holmes uh, put it this way. Literal truth is the lowest level of truth. He's speaking with regards to religion, but also with regards to things like art. He's, he's an artist himself. The, the literal truth is like the lowest level of truth, especially when dealing with things like art and religion. You know, Consider how dry and meaningless a literal interpretation of a Picasso painting would be. Imagine someone who looks at a Picasso and says, well, it's just a bunch of abstract images of people in a cafe. It's just some, it's just some oil on canvas blue, red, gold, and brown, whatever. Such a person misses the meaning of the painting entirely, right? With their so-called literal interpretation of it. Or imagine somebody listening to a singer-songwriter in a bar. After the artist is done, they go up to them after they're set, and this person says, your lyrics are very poetic, but I'm, I'm only interested in their literal meaning. What, what were you literally trying to tell us with this love song? Who, who would say such a thing? The literal truth is like the lowest level of truth. It's dry, it's wooden, it's kind of meaningless, heartless. I contend that often when it comes down to the scriptures, especially the gospels, the four gospels, we sound the same way when we say things like, unless Jesus literally walked on water, literally rose from the dead. Unless that happened, it's all meaningless. No, such ways of thinking are, are ways of thinking according to the world's standards of thinking, according to the world's standards of what's powerful and mighty. Not according to the kingdom of the crucified God who comes to us in a text loaded with narrative and symbolism and metaphor and poetry and, and parables. <clears throat> I love the way, I think it was Caputo who also put it this way, Jesus didn't just tell parables. Jesus was a parable. What's wrong with that? 
This too is a way of thinking in terms of the kingdom of God, a kingdom of reversals, challenges our conceptions of what's really strong and what's really weak, what's really mighty, what's really powerful. The Apostle Paul mused on this. He was utterly taken in by it and inspired by it. And in 1 Corinthians 1, he, he says it this way, and I'll, I'll close with this and we'll go to communion. Has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? God chose what is foolish in the world's eyes to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, the things that are not, in order to reduce to nothing the things that are. The word of the Lord. And as we turn towards communion today, let us consider how this holy sacrament is further an embodiment and an illustration of the so-called weakness of God. Here we find the blood and body of Jesus of Nazareth, God in the flesh, we're told, broken, poured out. And as his people, we are invited to partake in this kingdom of weakness, this kingdom of so-called powerlessness, which is really a kingdom of love and self-sacrifice and compassion, a kingdom that is open to the spirit of God all around us, and in our sacred text, as we partake in this sacrament today, let us consider what it means for us, for you individually, to embrace or embody this so-called weakness of God. Each episode of the Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. today. I'd also love to hear maybe what might be your conceptions of the so-called weakness of God. Um, yeah. Or Christ's kingship, maybe. Anybody have any thoughts about that? The kingdom of God. I left you speechless. Wow. All right. <laughs> That's okay. Some Sundays, not so much. We're just tired from the holiday weekend, maybe. I don't know. All right. Yeah. Oh, Rodney and, and Emily. Yeah. <laughs> it's not so much speechless as you just um, give me things to think about. So. So I kind of have a question. I just want to make sure I'm clear on one of your points, being that the strength and power of the Bible is the fact that it does not provide clear answers on a lot of things, but 
that it's open to interpretation? Like a piece of, like a piece of art? Um, I, th I think that could be part of it. More specifically for me, what I find to be the true strength and power of the text and what I'm specifically talking about here are the four Gospels, for me, my opinion, is the fact that they invite us into this, well, first of all, that I think that they're meant to relay spiritual truths about what it means to be human, what it means to be fully human. I think Jesus of Nazareth exemplified this idea of what a complete, or what we might say, in other, an enlightened human being looks like. One who just gives themselves completely over to the loving embrace of others, and specifically for the marginalized, the oppressed, and lays down his life, and shows us how to really be fully human. And so for me, that's the real power of, of the text. In that sense, um, it's, it's not, you know, giving us an exact historical or scientific retelling of history, but it's inviting, it's, it's teaching us literal spiritual truths, you might say, not giving us a literal, a literal uh, understanding of history, but it's teaching us literal spiritual truths. So for me, that's, that's the real power of the text. Um, like a piece of art, that's the real power. But yeah, it also, I think, in a way, uh, invites different interpretations. The text reads us, so to speak. It reads us. And that also has to do with it as well for me. Yeah. A good question. Uh, Emily. Well, that just a lot of manipulation from people who want to interpret it in a way to control others. Um, so that's fun. Um, which is why we're all here in recovery. Um, no, I was going to say, what's that last part that you read? Um, the last block and and yeah and sort of I don't know speak it in a layman terms or like explain a little bit more about that so Paul is musing there in that text on the utter um, bizarreness and um, uh, profound and he, he's basically remarking about how this idea of a crucified God is so antithetical to his, first, his and other first century Jewish peoples, even Greek uh, people, in other words, Gentiles, they're, they're thinking about what is divinity, what is, what is the power of God, how is it possibly revealed in a God who comes to earth as a human being and is utterly humiliated and crucified. And crucifixion in that day and time was like the ultimate humiliation, right? And so he's remarking, well, what about God is being revealed in the crucifixion that is so profound and so true? And, and so for him, it represented how within this idea of Christianity, at that time I think it was called Christianity when Paul was writing it, but, you know, it, it revealed this God who, again, is just antithetical to the, to the idea of the gods of that time, you know, in his world, in the Greek world mostly, you know, gods weren't. The gods were immortal, they were powerful. It was Hercules, it was Achilles, it was Perseus, it was all these deities who were known for their power and strength and their heroic deeds, not being stripped naked and hung on a cross. How does that reveal the power of, of our, to, to the world, he was saying, this is nonsense, this is foolishness. But what the world sees as nonsense and foolishness is the actual power of God. 
And so for me and for others like Caputo, you know, we, we look at that and we take it to its ultimate conclusion. And, and for us, it speaks to how God is, the God revealed in the suffering Christ is not all powerful, but a God who calls us into being, calls us to embrace life in the world as it actually is. That's for me the deeper meaning of that passage. But for Paul at his time, I think it had more to do with a God who stands in solidarity with the crucified ones of this world, the, the broken, the outcast, the marginalized, the oppressed. God is with them, not the elite and the powerful. God is in solidarity with them, and therefore so should we be in solidarity with them. I think that's more about what it represented uh, to Paul at his time. But you know, I'm taking that further down the road and exploring about what that means to say that God is not a God of power as we ascertain or think about power. And how is that good news to think about a God who is powerless according to the world's standards of power and might? How is that good news? Well, for me, it's great news. Because even though it means that God is not all-powerful, it means that we, the, the idea and the, for me is that we can embrace here and now and find a kind of divinity and sacrality, a kind of wholeness in the midst of life now and all of its trouble and lack and all of its joy and celebration too. We, we can find... It's, we find this idea in other religions, like Buddhism, right? This idea of embracing the lack, embracing the now, making peace with death, making peace with temporality, infinitude, mortality, making peace with that, and thereby transcending it and finding serenity. That, that to me, has to do with this idea of the power of a powerless God, the power of a God revealed in the crucified God. That's, for me, the deeper, the deeper part of that story or that that text does that help yes yeah yeah at the cross the cruelty and injustice of the world wasn't extinguished it wasn't extinguished it was exposed revealed for what it is kind of like a a man who's who's revealed that he beats his wife is, is that a symbol of power no it's a symbol of weakness He's exposed. It's, it's born out of insecurity, and deep brokenness. Yeah, he looks real powerful beating on his wife, or you know what I mean? Like a bully. The, the power of a bully is revealed. We all know what a power, the power of a bully is. It's really weakness. It's born out of insecurity and brokenness, right? fear. The cross reveals that the powers of this world are actually what's weak, and the power of love and self-sacrifice and resistance, that's real power. That's the power of the crucified God. Real power. Love, justice, compassion, laying your life down for the cause of love, justice, and compassion. That's real power. Yeah, that's, that's also at the heart, I think, of what Paul's getting at in 1 Corinthians. That's, yeah. Thank you for that. That was a good question. Some of this stuff is, needs to be elucidated a little better. Yeah, Marcia. With that in mind, where does prayer and asking God to help us, how does that fit? Where does it fit into this idea of a God who's not powerful in the way that we might think of power? Yeah. I struggle with this one, to be honest. You know? Um, there's different conceptions of prayer. You know, one of... One of the conceptions that I like is, you know, prayer is perhaps, if, just to speak of it in terms of power, what, how, how could prayer 
be potentially powerful in changing our physical circumstances? Well, if in fact it's true that consciousness, human consciousness, courses is part of the consciousness that courses through all things, um, then you can imagine that perhaps uniting our consciousness in an effort uh, to change the material world, maybe that's powerful in a way. I don't know. I mean, maybe that has something to do with what we call the power of God. But I do believe that we need to cut ties with and distance ourselves from this conception of prayer that we were raised with, which I think is actually antithetical to prayer. This idea that if we just, if you pray the right words, and if you pray them with enough certainty, i.e. faith, right? You pray them with enough certainty and, and, and you pray the right words, then you can literally raise the dead. Or, you know, we can clean out the local hospital of patients. <laughs> if we just prayed hard enough, pray, you know, that actual idea of God is kind of terrible. Is God who's waiting on us to pray and ask nicely and ask with enough faith to, you know, heal babies of cancer? This is, this is a, a God who's kind of holding a gun to our head and says, I'm, the trigger's gonna get pulled unless you pray and you have enough faith. That's a terrible idea of God and a terrible idea of prayer. To, to pray is to enter us into a mystery, I would say, in this regard. I don't know how prayer is effective. Maybe it is. I don't know. But I can't believe in that all-powerful God who will act if we just pray hard enough and with enough faith. That God is deplorable to me. I can't go there anymore. But to pray is to enter into a mystery, um, into what, what is collective care and concern what is collective consciousness the power thereof but also you know the deeper understanding of prayer to me when we pray up here and we hear each other's cares and concerns and see each other's tears and meet each other in that moment of sacredness where we cry out together to this energy this force this one who meets us in our sufferings to cry out in those moments i think is a profoundly meaningful spiritual act. Um, at least it is for me. Um, there's so much going on there. I'm curious to hear your thoughts. What is prayer for you these days, now that you've left behind maybe your evangelical understanding of prayer? I don't know. Yeah, Emily. I just think, too, maybe it's a ritual of the, the community that we all um, being aware, the energy connecting, that basically like, if we're, if we're all here and we're all suffering, and the most important part of that is being there for each other, praying um, sort of, you know, if I'm praying for you, I feel like that connects us. Um, and also, I think praying to God helps us remember that we're not alone. Those are good answers. Somebody else. Yeah, Dorian. Um, prayer has kind of become the opposite for me. Uh, it's kind of become this anxiety-filled moment where it's just, I don't know if I'll get any help. I don't know if I'll be caught, you know, I don't know if someone will be there for me, because clearly I'm in that moment because I can't do something by myself, right? And so then it becomes this moment of fear, right? And, and this understanding moment of 
I need, I need something, I need somebody, right? And obviously it's selfish because it's so particular and so, you know, to my situation or my moment and that space and time. Um, but in a way, it's kind of a reality check for me a lot of times. It's kind of a, you know, it's like, just when you thought like everything was fine, like the world has its, you know, ebbs and flows and, you know, or, and the universe does, right? Uh, but it's just this moment where I have to, not I have to, but I essentially I just choose to be like, okay, these are my fears, these are my concerns in this moment in time, and to accept them. And obviously, you you build plans and you 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 construct ideas of, of how to how to get out of those or how to you know overcome those. Uh, but just to allow yourself to kind of you know in a weird maybe it's sadistic, but in a weird way, just kind of remind yourself, dude, you like you know. Everybody has issues. Everybody's got things, and it's 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 it's, it's living through those and just kind of remembering, man, I can't do this by myself. Like, and I need to, in a way, I, I need to elevate my mindset out of this, and and which in a way can be, you know, it, it can be. Um, I think it, it can be problematic because it, in a way you're kind of not dealing with it. Um, that moment whenever you you know you take your mindset out of like I, I don't want to think about that right now I don't want to think about that but essentially it's it's a very meditative process for me in a way where I I have to face that fear right and and think about how others help and how others are there and how I'm not the only I'm not the only one going through this and also how I need help and others and and even the the idea of something bigger than me yeah. I think that's what prayers be for me in a weird way uh, lately. It's yeah. just meditative. And let's be clear about the kind of prayer we're talking about, because there's many kinds of prayers. At the moment, we're talking about intercessory prayer, that, that term inter which means to intercede for others, like on prayers of the people. When people come up here, we pray over you know their loved one with cancer or something like that. That's called intercessory prayer. There's many different understandings of prayer. Just, just you being here and meditating on these things, participating in these discussions, singing these songs, reading these, uh, hearing Bob read the liturgy, and then bowing your head, you know. That too is a kind of prayer. That's not intercessory prayer. That too is a kind of prayer. There's different kinds of prayer. Your whole life can be an act of prayer. As Paul says, I pray constantly, right? So about how your whole way of giving yourself to love and to others is a kind of prayer. It's an act of hope, hoping that What's, what's the term I hear people say, you know, be the change you hope to see in the world. That too is a kind of prayer, an embodied kind of prayer, right? But we're talking about an intercessory prayer. And, you know, ironically, you know, in a sense to, um, to engage an intercessory prayer, there's something kind of ironic about it because you're, you're, you're ultimately saying in that moment, I'm at the end of my rope. I don't have a prayer. I'm, I'm here because I don't have a prayer, so to speak. You know, you've heard that term, you know. I'm at the end of my rope. That's intercessory prayer. I, I, I've got to cry out to the void, like Jesus on the cross. God, where the hell are you? That's a kind of prayer. Maybe that's the heart of prayer. To, to, to pray is to say you don't have a prayer. And you're at the end of your rope, and you're just crying out for help. And in that moment, we meet each other. We pray with each other. And we pray for relief. Pray for strength, pray for healing, pray for 
as, as an expression of the hopelessness of the situation and a way of channeling our collective energy, you might say, into hope with the hope that something might happen that's good. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, but the irony of prayer is to say you don't have a prayer, you know, intercessory prayer I'm talking about. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, someone once said, if, if talking about prayer isn't giving us a great deal of trouble, then we're not really talking about prayer. <laughs> prayer is a difficult conversation. Uh, Jason, yeah. I think I've only really prayed that kind of intercessory prayer a handful of times in my life. I think I've done a lot of talking into the void, but I don't think that's really prayer. There's, when my aunt was dying of cancer, uh, must have been like 10 years ago now, um, or something like that, I remember I had uh, just gone to like help her take her to the hospital or something, and uh, I don't know if it was the same night or a different night, but I remember praying, um, and it wasn't... Uh, well, one, it wasn't in English, and I grew up Pentecostal, and I know that, like, speaking in tongues, a lot of it's bullshit, pardon my French. Uh, all of it, all of it is, I think, but I, I did one time really pray in not English, and I, it wasn't even a prayer that I could uh, explain to you. Like, it wasn't, uh, there was no logical or mental... Um, like, it was an intercession. I wasn't praying for anything I can explain. It was for her, but it wasn't, like, help her get better, you know, help her pass on, whatever. It wasn't any of that. It was just pure nonsense that went on for <laughs> a few minutes, and then I felt like it was done. And I felt like that was prayer. And I have no explanation for why I did it or what it was or... Uh, it might have been, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty out of touch with my emotions. It's hard for me to know whether I'm uh, in a state <laughs> that I need that or not. Uh, but yeah, like it, uh, I think it probably clicked something in me. And I feel like that was one of the few times when I've actually prayed. It was actually, I mean, it was, it was a prayer on purpose, but it was beyond my understanding. Yeah, I've, I found myself privately in that kind of prayer recently with, I had to take um, Lucy and Sophie to the emergency room um, a couple months ago. They had, we had strep in the house and Lucy couldn't even walk. She had called cellulitis, which is like an infection of the, um, the, the subdermal skin in her legs. It was, it was really scary. And um, I took them both to the emergency room, I remember, and she was complaining of uh, flank pain, too, like, which immediately got me thinking, oh my god, it's like she's got a strep infection that's in her kidneys. I was freaking out. And I'm sitting there at CHLA, and I found myself praying, you know, begging God to not let my kid I, I know it's dramatic, but in that moment as a parent, you're thinking, oh my God, are they dying? You know what I mean? She was, she was crying. She was in so much pain with her, her side. 
and you know, turned out to be an allergic, re it turned out to be strep, but also like an allergic reaction to these bug bites she was having. Thank God it wasn't worse, right? But I find myself interceding for her, hoping that someone, something, something is listening and I can potentially change material reality with my consciousness or, or outpouring of love outpouring of care and concern. I don't, you know, my energy affecting the material world around me. I don't know. That's why I did it. <laughs> because I was so moved in that moment for my kid. And maybe that's, that too is what prayer is. But I make no guarantees. <laughs> I don't think you can. Um, I don't know. I'm just sharing with you my experience and my thoughts on it. That, you know, again, this is an environment where I invite many different understandings. And that's why we pray, because it's not about me. It's not about what I believe, necessarily. It's about what we believe, or what you, what you believe, what you hope in. And I sincerely affirm that and enter into that holy space with you on Sunday mornings here. But, um, yeah, any other thoughts about this? Good conversation. Great question, Marcia. <laughs> this, this conversation today about, you know, the power of God naturally leads into questions of prayer. Thank you, yeah. Um, other thoughts? Questions? Your thoughts on prayer and power? God. We finish every service with a prayer, do we not? We call it a benediction. And uh, we say this together. And we say it because it's powerful. Say it because it's meaningful. Let's do it together now. As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves, as Christ did, to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, everybody. Thanks for being there.